Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. You put in the bad drawing and then put another drawing and then show somebody the bad drawing. And if you show somebody the good drawing, the bad drawing, the, the okay drawing, then all together, it's just part of the process. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers, with your special year-end replay. This December, we're revisiting four interviews with artists who show up every single day and create. And in today's episode, I'm talking with Sherry Blaukoff. In the conversation, you'll learn which materials you need to get started in urban sketching, ideas for places to draw, and ways for overcoming that sketchbook stage fright, plus a whole lot more. There's a great extended cut bonus with this episode. Join the podcast art club at any tier and discover what makes a good value pattern and what to do in those seasons when there is no strong light to paint. Plus, when you join, you get access to an additional 40 bonus conversations with guests and you support the show for years to come. Find links to the podcast art club and show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 52. I start the interview by asking Blaukoff how she got started in art. Well, I was one of those kids who always had a big box of Prismacolors. I always was, you know, sitting in my room drawing and doing all kinds of things. And then I guess I was about 12. There was a man in our neighborhood who taught watercolor. And my parents said, would you like to go and, you know, learn? I was the only kid. I mean, it was mostly adults. He had a little studio in his basement. And we did still life and florals and things like that. So I got started with watercolor that way. It was sort of a hobby. I wasn't that keen on it. It was no spark. It was fun. But where I really fell in love with watercolor was a summer when I was studying graphic design in university in Montreal. And again, a friend of my parents said, I'm going to study with Ed Whitney in Kennebunkport, Maine. And do you think Sherry would like to go? And my parents were always very encouraging. And they said, Oh, yeah, let's see what this is like. And they, they asked me if I wanted to go. And I went and I studied with Ed Whitney, who I, I sort of had, you know, no idea who he was, although he was a very famous man. And he was in his 80s or his 90s when I studied with him. I was studying design at the time I was studying graphic design, learning illustration and page design and layout. And I got to this motel in Kennebunkport, where all these artists were, and his approach was so different from what I had ever done because it was a design approach to painting. So it wasn't at all about, well, it was a little bit about technique, but it was mainly about really looking at how you were going to break up the page. What was the composition? That for me meshed so perfectly with the graphic design principles that I was learning in school. And then finally, for me, painting wasn't about just representing something like the flowers or the still life that I was looking at, but it was a problem that had to be solved. And that was the spark for me. That was like, wow, okay, I need a shape. 
It has to have a direction. I have to think about the values. There was a plan. And I loved that idea of a there had to be a plan in this. And then we would have these critiques. So, you know, you'd put up your thing and did you solve the problem? Did you have a dominant shape? Had you thought through the values? Was there a dominant color? Was there repetition? Were the values right? Sometimes you'd look at your value plan and then say, well, you had a great value plan, but you really failed in the painting. So this was, you know, maybe 40 years ago, but these are things that I think about every day still, whether it's in a small sketch, whether it's in a big painting, that value plan, that idea of what you want to represent, how you want to break up the space on that rectangle is the first thing that I still think about every time I paint. Well, then you walked away from painting for a while. You put down the brush for a while. How did you know it was time to step away? And then what brought you back? Well, I stepped away because I, I had kids. I had two little boys and I was a working mother. I always had a graphic design business and um, I had these two really active boys and they were swimmers. So we spent a lot of time going back and forth to the pool and I just, there was no time. I mean, I just raising them and also uh, trying to be a working graphic designer. And then I became a graphic design teacher in a college. And actually what brought me back is really interesting. When I started teaching graphic design, I knew on the first day that I loved teaching. I just came home and I said to my husband, wow, I just, I love seeing the connect, like the spark in a student's eyes when you teach them something. So I, I always loved learning, but then I realized I also love teaching. So what brought me back was I was seeing my students, graphic design students. Now, when I studied graphic design, I sketched out my ideas. This was before everybody had personal computers and before Photoshop and Illustrator, and we all drew our ideas on paper. So our ideas went from our head to the sketch pad. And with my students, they didn't know how to sketch. They didn't know how to draw out any ideas. And I realized that there was no tactile either. Like they never picked up a pencil. They would come to class with no pencil, no pad, nothing. Just sit at the computer and hope that ideas would come out of the box, you know, the screen. So I said, we got to, I got to get them sketching. So I picked up a sketchbook again and I got them to get sketchbooks. And I realized how much I missed it. Like I just, I wasn't drawing and I wasn't painting and I had to get back to it again. So it was my students that led me back to it. Then once I started sketching, I, I made a little commitment to myself. I'm going to draw for 10 minutes every day. And I had a little three by five sketchbook. And I said, I'm going to draw every day. And I also wanted to understand and make a commitment to it. So I started a blog on WordPress. And I just said, I'm just going to post my little 10 minute sketch every day. And that's going to be my commitment to myself. And hopefully it will inspire my students also to be committed to their work and just draw a little bit every day. And it didn't really matter what they drew. They could, you know, draw on the bus or draw each other or just doodle or draw from imagination or whatever. So that was what brought me back to it. So is that how you found urban sketching specifically then? Yes, I started that daily sketching practice. And for me, previously, back in the days of Ed Whitney, and I, I did paint for many years before I had kids. So in those days, I always had my sketchbook with me, but the sketch was just really the planning for a painting. It wasn't anything more than that. It was just, you know, you had a pencil and you did a value sketch and then you moved on to the painting. 
And when I got back into the sketchbook thing, I started going online and looking at artwork and just seeing like, who else sketches? Like, is this a thing? Do people sketch? And I discovered Urban Sketchers. And the night that I discovered Urban Sketchers, and I, it was so exciting to see what I saw online, I, I couldn't sleep that night. I was just so fascinated. And I, I always tell people when the first day that I saw Urban Sketchers, and it was a long scroll blog, the original Urban Sketchers blog, and it was someone, in, I think in Jakarta, who had sketched the ritual slaughter of a goat. So it w- it wasn't just like a landscape sketch. It was these these people holding the legs of the goat, and you're sketching people who are moving. You're telling a story. It was so thrilling, so exciting. And then I started looking at other people's work, and they were sketching in markets. And it was the storytelling aspect that was so exciting for me. So my sketchbooks are my photo albums, basically, of my travels. You know, people have heard these terms. So what is the difference between urban sketching and plein air painting? Of course, there's a a lot of overlap. But to me, urban sketching is mostly in a sketchbook, although some people work on just on separate sheets of paper. But to me, there's a, a chronology to it. And there is, to me, more of a storytelling aspect to it. In other words, what I just described, you know, urban sketching, you can be in the middle of a protest, you can go and, you know, I even did it when I was, my school was on strike, and I took my sketchbook to the picket line. So there's a there's a storytelling aspect to it. And I I think that's, to me, more of what urban sketching is about. Although I will sometimes take my sketchbook and sit in a landscape situation and that sketch then becomes a painting. So there's a lot of overlap. And for people who are unfamiliar with the term, when we say urban sketching, we don't just mean pencil and pen. Like There is paint involved. There is paint. I've seen people doing urban sketching with oils on little panels. I've seen acrylic. A lot of people work in gouache. People work in markers. A lot of people work in pen and ink. And then a lot of people work in mixed media and combine all of that and throw pastel on top of that. And urban sketchers find all kinds of ways to work. For example, if you go into a museum and, you know, you're not allowed to bring paint, so people bring water-soluble colored pencils. I've done that, so I'll draw in colored pencil. And then I'll go to the museum cafe and then take a water brush and put water on that. So we find all kinds of ways of working. Well, then what's the biggest hurdle you see people who are interested in urban sketching, but but maybe new to it? What's the biggest challenge new urban sketchers face? The intimidation factor of being in public. And I experienced that myself when I first went back to sketching 10 or so years ago, the first time that I went outside, I sat in my car and I was on one street over from where I live. And I was so worried that somebody would see me and call the police because I was loitering on the street. So that was just in my car. But then there's even more of an intimidating factor because if you're sitting in public, like if you're sitting in a market and you're drawing, people will come and look at what you're doing and you feel a little bit like you're going to be judged. So I think that's the hardest thing for people. That's why Urban Sketchers is also a great organization because there's regional chapters and city chapters. So people go out with others 
And when you're with somebody else and you're both doing the same thing, or there's three of you or four of you or six of you doing the same thing, then you feel comfortable because you're not the only one. But I think for me and for most people, that's the comment I get for people who take my courses and then come to a workshop. They say, I'm so excited to be sketching with other people on location because I am afraid to go out on my own. When someone goes out on their own, what are sort of the basic materials they need to get started? I mean, is it important to not bring everything? It's very important to not bring everything. And I was always guilty of that, of bringing too many things. And now I really pare it down. But I think, you know, the minimum, I started with a three by five sketchbook that I could put in my pocket and I still carry one in my bag all the time because you never know where you are if you're waiting for the garage or the dentist or whatever. So I just have a pencil or a little permanent marker, like a pit pen. And sometimes I bring along a tiny little palette and a little water brush. So if I want to put a little bit of color, so you don't need a lot of materials. That's what I would say is just have something that's handy. If you have it in your pocket, then there's no excuse. If you have five minutes, you can always draw. So if you're waiting, if you have kids and you're waiting for your kids, you're picking up your kids at school. A lot of people draw in their cars like that. I draw as a passenger in the car when we have long drives. I take a little kit in the car and I draw the clouds. I draw the changing landscape. It's also a really good memory exercise when you're drawing in the car because you're drawing things that you pass. So you're training your brain to look at something, register a picture. So that's a really good exercise too, to carry it in the car. But I would say the minimum is a pen or a pencil, a little sketchbook. And if you have a little bit of color, like a tiny palette, you don't need a lot of stuff. And I'm not a huge fan of a water brush, but in a situation where you can't carry a lot of stuff, one of those little water reservoir brushes and a tiny palette, you only need three or four colors, you're set. And I should mention that Sherry has a great materials breakdown on her website, and we'll link to that in the show notes. It's it's awesome. There's pictures. It's a fantastic discussion of materials. And every time I post that, Kelly, then I change a color in my palette and someone says, well, where did that yellow go? And I was, oh, that was like three photos ago. Oh, no. Um so one of the things you just mentioned was a sketchbook. So what makes a good quality sketchbook? Of course, it depends on how you work. So people who work in ink a lot and don't put a lot of color, like Paul Heaston is a wonderful artist and sketcher and a good friend of mine, and he's just amazing with ink. And he just has a pen and he has a little bit of diluted ink. The best paper, I think, for someone who works in ink, like Paul does, is to have a smoother paper, a paper where the ink just flows beautifully on the paper. So more like a hot press paper or a mixed media paper. For me, I prefer a book that can take a beating, can take a lot of wash. So I use books that have watercolor paper in them. They don't have to be 100% cotton, but they can't warp too much. I've made my own sketchbooks. I've tried many kinds of sketchbooks. I've sort of whittled it down to the few that I like because I know that I can throw a lot of paint on them and I can even lift if I have to. I mean, I don't use a lot of lifting and I don't use masking fluid, but you want to be able to have a paper that can take a little bit of a beating in terms of wash. What sizes of sketchbook do you use? Now I mostly work in eight by eight book because I like square format. 
is interesting for composition. But I also open it up so I work 16 by 8 if I want to do a panoramic scene. Or I work in a landscape format 8 by 11 or A4, I think is the format, which is also really nice with watercolor paper. So those are the two sizes that I use mostly. What weight of paper are your sketchbooks? The one that I use most often is a 90-pound watercolor paper, and the other one is, I think, a 140. What brushes do you use? Usually now I use a one-stroke flat. The one I use most often now is a three-eighths of an inch or a half inch, and I use one good round. I have a, a number seven round that I love, and I like one good mop for big washes like skies, like a, a squirrel mop. And then I always have to have one kind of rigor, liner, calligraphic thing. It doesn't really matter. I mean, there are a lot of good brands and I change my allegiance to the brand depending on how it works for me that day. But mostly if I have one flat and one round, and the same thing in my travel kit, if I have one flat and one round and one calligraphy thing, then I'm good. And then I can make any marks. And the only thing that I say is, you know, buy the best brush that you can afford. But then if you have a good brush with a good point, then don't dig around in the paint with it. You have to really learn how to take care of it by picking up the paint horizontally and not with the tip of the brush, because that will wear it down. And I have several good sable brushes, but some I don't take out if I'm going urban sketch because I know they'll get smashed or I'll turn them upside down in my bag. So I, I leave some in studio that I know are in a little cup and they're upright and I, I've taken good care of them and they still have their points because, wow, they're so expensive. How do you keep, especially earlier in your career, how do you keep from getting precious about sketchbooks? Like if there's a bunch of beautiful paintings in it or beautiful studies, it feels weird to just pull out a pencil and do a doodle. So... How do you keep from feeling too precious about your sketchbooks? That's a very good question. I'll tell you different techniques that I've seen people do. Some people don't start on the first page because that's intimidating, that white page. So they sort of start in the middle and then, you know, work around the book. I don't like that. I like the chronology of the book. I've seen even some people take their book, step on the first page to dirty it up and then go on. So then it's already a little bit dirty. But I think it's a psychological thing. I think you just have to think, well, there's going to be good and there's going to be bad in this book, but it's a sketchbook. So it's for trying out things. Because in the beginning, I would go to sketching events and people would say, can I see your sketchbook? And there'd be, for me, some bad drawings. And I'd take double-sided tape and I'd stick it together because I was embarrassed about people seeing my bad drawings. But then I realized that the sketchbook is just about everything. I mean, I record all kinds of stuff in my day or in my travel that are in there. So I think it's just a psychological thing. You just have to get over, you know, just you put in the bad drawing and then put another drawing and then show somebody the bad drawing. And if you show somebody the good drawing, the bad drawing, the, the okay drawing, then all together, it's just part of the process, good and bad. And sometimes there's mood in there too. Like I think of the things that I drew in my sketchbook at the start of the pandemic that were looking kind of dark, you know, but that also is important. Or I think about the sketches that I did in an airport on my way home at the start of the pandemic, when everybody was really nervous about flying and wanting to get home. And so I think it's better to just 
have everything in there because it's the chronology of it that's important. It's not the quality of it that's important. For me, it's having all stages of your life in there. That's sort of what a sketchbook is. I mean, I'm not a a journal person, like I don't write long texts in there, but the drawings say it sometimes. And sometimes it's only in hindsight that you look back and you see, well, that was a period. And that period was maybe I was feeling this way or that way. And my drawings reflect that. It's not about having perfect drawings in there. Well, then could you walk us through your process? The first important part of the process for me, whether it's a sketch or whether it's a painting, is to spend some time thinking. So when I get on location and I'm, whether I have a stool or an easel, I just sit down and I either look around and turn my chair so I can see different views. If I'm, for example, in a city and I'm looking at the way the light is or the way the buildings are, if I'm in a landscape, I walk around first and I just think about where do I find the spark in this scene? What is it that I'm looking for that I want to express? Is there a story that I want to tell? Sometimes it's just, what do I want to say about the day? For example, sometimes when I'm in my car, it's a very windy day. If I want to express wind, then I'm looking for a lot of diagonals in the scene. I'll look for a lot of poles and I'll look for things that look like they're blowing in the wind, like trees that are blowing in the wind. So what do I want to say about the day or the place? So the first part of the process is really the thinking. That's more for an urban sketch. I mean, if I'm working on a studio painting, it's something different, and we can come back to that after. The second part of the process is I'm not really a direct painter, so I don't pick up a brush right away. For me, the drawing part is really important. So I'll start by sort of plotting out on the paper in my sketch where are those main elements going to go. Sometimes If the values are really important, the value pattern is really important, I'll make a tiny little postage size little sketch just where the lights and darks are going to go. But sometimes that process goes on in my head. For example, I will look at a scene and I will know right away where those darks are going to be. And then once I do a pencil drawing or an ink drawing, and people often ask me, why do you sometimes use ink and sometimes only use pencil? So If I'm doing an urban scene and there's a lot of texture in the scene, like a lot of buildings, a lot of wires, brick, things that require line, then I will use pen. If it's just big shapes, then I I will likely just use pencil because it doesn't require all that ink texture. Once I've done that, then I'll get out my brushes. And whether I'm doing a small little urban sketch or whether I'm doing a big painting, it's the same process. I paint the big shapes first. So I think about where the big shapes are, how they relate to each other, what are the negative shapes, what's the composition of the negative shapes. And so I paint the big shapes first. And I think more about temperature than I do about color. So I will often think where are the warm parts of the scene and where are the cool parts of the scene, not so much where's the red going to go or where's the green going to go. But is that a white wall in shadow? Is that going to be cool? Is that a yellow wall? And then how does the shadow look on that? And then once I put down those big shapes, and sometimes if I'm painting in my car, I have to use the dryer in the car to, to dry it to get to the next stage. Then I start putting down the smaller details and all the fun little things. But really, I could put down a big wash that takes up maybe three quarters of the sheet that's some kind of middle value and maybe composed of different colors. 
but it's mostly a middle value. So I'm always looking for what is that big shape of that middle value? What are the whites that I'm painting around that I'm leaving? And then the darks are usually those small shapes that fit in a bit like puzzle pieces. You know, where do those little dark pieces go? So I'm always looking for the puzzle in the scene. It sounds like the middle value is sort of the dominant value in your work. Yes, that's usually what I'm looking for. So when I'm going out and looking for a scene, whether it's a big painting or a sketch, I'm not looking for a thing. I'm looking for shapes. And I remember very well when I first started urban sketching and a friend of mine said, you don't know my neighborhood and I want to show you my neighborhood. And she kept driving around and showing me there's this church and there's this ice cream place. And she was saying, do you want to paint this or do you want to paint that? And I kept saying, no. And she, she finally, she said, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm just looking for shapes. I'm just looking for good shapes. So sometimes a good shape can just be found looking down an alleyway where there's light coming across it and there's really no subject there or no big building or no, it's just the way the shapes fit together, those lights and darks and contrast and a little bit of color. So that's what I'm looking for, shapes. You made the comment that when you either do a sketch or a painting, how do you differentiate those two things in your mind? To me, a sketch is mostly in my book. It's often with ink and it's smaller. A painting is usually for me bigger. It's on a big sheet of watercolor paper at like at least a quarter sheet and or a half sheet or a full sheet. And I've probably done a lot more preparation. I've done a value sketch sometimes in pencil or sometimes in Payne's Gray. I sometimes will do a small color version of the painting first and just with a big brush and just try and figure out what the color harmony is going to be, what the color dominance is going to be. And then it's really the design. I'm really, really thinking about the design of it. Whereas a sketch might be more about the day or the story in there. It sounds like one is more about capturing mood but it's it's quicker? Yes, it's quicker and it's more somehow in the moment. So those paintings, are you doing those on location or are those happening back in the studio? I do as much as I can on location, but of course, living in Montreal, in Canada, in the winter, takes away about five months of painting outside. So I have lately taught myself to work more in the studio, but I love to work on location. So I try to work on location as much as I can, even with my paintings. I have an easel I go out with usually a quarter sheet of watercolor paper, and I try to find something to paint and set up my easel. And then I do the same process. I do a value sketch and I think about the good design, even on location, because there's an excitement that happens in plein air with changing light, changing temperature, wind, that because it's not a controlled environment, you're required to paint faster. And the results are usually fresher because you have to get down whatever that light is, the changing shadows, or the way the clouds are moving, or even the way a person walks through the scene. You have to get that down quickly. And so it forces you to simplify. And it forces you to work quicker. And I think the results are often fresher and nicer on location. You know, so many people want to paint loosely and want to paint 
quickly. I guess first off, are quick painting and loose painting something that always goes together? For me, loose painting is with a big brush. That's that's my method, is if I want to paint loosely, I have to take a big brush. When I learned to paint with Ed Whitney all those years ago, we painted with a two-inch flat. Then once you were getting down to the details, you went down to a one-inch flat. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're painting loosely, but you are forced to think about big shapes and not get down into the details. With watercolor, you're always a little bit on the edge of some kind of chaos happening on your sheet. So there is always an element of, yes, it's loose and fresh, but I I think loose painting is basically not touching the paper too many times, of not going over and over it and over it. When you can actually, in the finished painting, see evidence of the interaction of water and pigment. That's kind of, for me, loose painting. Does that mean for loose painting, it's more important to have made decisions, clear decisions walking in? Absolutely. That, for me, is the key if I have that value plan. Because I think the hardest part in watercolor is putting down the darks. You want the darks to be fresh, and you don't want them to be layered. I speak only for the way I paint, because there are many people that do beautifully glazed paintings, but I'm not that methodical. I just slosh it on. But when I slosh it on, I want to know where those dark patches are going to be. So if the dark patches are on white paper and not on top of six layers of middle value building up towards dark, then they're going to be lively, beautiful, rich, luminous darks that might have color complexity in them. And yet, even though they're dark, they still have paper coming through. And the white of that paper, even on a dark, makes a luminous painting. So if you can paint a big dark shape and know that that is where it's going to be, and it's in relation to lighter shapes or middle values, then it's going to be loose and spontaneous and fresh, yet with an idea in mind, where the intention of where it's going to be. You know, this is changing subjects a little bit, but you talked about your first step is finding a good scene. What are the biggest challenges that new painters have on location when it comes to finding a good scene or finding, I guess, finding anything to paint? Composition is one of the hardest things. Simplification is another huge one because you're surrounded by so many things in the environment and what do you keep and what enhances the composition and what reinforces what you're trying to say. So what do you put in there that reinforces the statement that you're trying to make? And then what do you take away that doesn't enhance and actually doesn't need to be in there? So, you know, I I mean, I like trash pails and good light on mundane objects, but sometimes there's just something in there that I I will just take away. It's because it's a shape that I find unattractive and I don't think it's going to enhance the thing anyway. So I think simplification is a big thing and a really great exercise that I sometimes make students do and that people can do on their own too, is to look at a scene, make a sketch and figure out what those big shapes are going to be if they're five or 10 shapes, and then turn around and paint it, put your back to the scene so that your reference is your sketch and you've made decisions, you've made compositional decisions about what the important shapes are, and then just paint those. 
And then, you know, if you need to cheat and turn around and look over your shoulder for a second, just because you forgot what that edge looked like or something. But that's a great exercise because I think composition, making an interesting composition and finding lost edges too, like looking at how a shape and a shadow combine. It's very hard to take away what something is from how you want to paint it. So if there's a house and the shadow that make one big shape, but yet you spend a lot of time really trying to define that house without connecting it to a shadow, it sometimes can be overly detailed. Whereas the statement can be much more beautiful and express the essence of the light of that day if you just think of those two things as one shape. So that's the other thing is don't look at objects, look at shapes. That's how I, I look out at every scene. And it sounds like that's a skill that someone will need to learn. That's not necessarily you're you're born with that skill. I think it's a form of abstraction. You know, you're sitting there and you're you are combining shapes, but squinting really helps. So if you look at a scene and you squint, the values on the light end will go closer together and the values on the dark end will go closer together. And that will help you see the pattern in the scene. It's also really hard to look at a big scene. You know, you have your peripheral vision and you're, you're moving constantly. And how do you define what's going to be within that square that's on your paper? And I remember this very distinctly from a workshop that I was teaching on location in Montreal, this, my, my favorite uh, city square that's this beautiful city square with a fountain in the middle and surrounded by these houses. And when you're teaching and you're drawing a scene, you're composing on your paper and students, they're looking at the same scene as you and they, then they see what you draw. But after that demo, a student called me over and she said, come sit down with me. I just saw you paint that scene, but here I am and I'm sitting on this bench and I see this whole big world in front of me and I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to start. How do I figure out what to draw in this big scene? Where do you begin? So I told her, just find something that you find fascinating in that scene, whether it's the way the branches of the trees come up, whether it's the dark tree against a light background. Don't try and represent the whole scene with all the details and the people going through it. Find one thing. Sometimes it's interesting just to find one thing and then organically the scene will grow out of the relationships. If it's a light against a dark or a pattern of shapes that have a rhythm that travel through the sketch or through the painting, and then figure out what will be around them. But start with something that you feel an emotional connection to, whether it's visually a connection or whether you see uh, someone sitting on the bench and the light is nice on them. Just start with that. Find one connection and from there, make it grow out of there. Do you think part of the challenge that's happening there is that as artists, we think we have to make some grand statement with everything we paint. Like that takes a kind of confidence to be able to say, I think the light on that shoulder is beautiful. And because I think it's beautiful, I'm going to paint it. Like that takes a, a strange amount of confidence to be able to both verbalize it, that takes skill, but then yes. also to trust it and do it. Yes, I think it takes confidence, but I think you also have to completely forget that each time you put a brush or a pencil to paper that you want to make something beautiful. I think you should just 
say to yourself, I just want to express that relationship of the light on the person's shoulder. And if I feel successful in that, then I'm successful today. It doesn't matter if I've made something beautiful, but every time you do something, if you could learn something, if you could teach yourself something, if you could get better at something, then you're successful. It's really hard to say, I want to make this beautiful painting. It's not going to come out beautiful. There's Something's going to go wrong. So to me, it's better to have another kind of goal, which is just to make one thing work, one thing right. And then if you're lucky, maybe all things will come out. But I don't know, whenever I've tried to say, I want that to be some beautiful thing, that doesn't work out. Not for me. <laughs> That's there's something comforting about hearing someone who has your skill level saying like, oh, yeah, beautiful is the goal. Like, that's never going to work. That's never going to work. Well, then you say that shapes are one of the first things you look for in a good scene. So what makes a good shape? How do you know you have good shapes? In the Ed Whitney school of thought, a good shape is something that is different distances from all sides that is an interlocking shape with other shapes. It's not just a rectangle, but it, it is, again, pieces of a puzzle that work together. There's things in back of it or things that are in front of it. It might have some value change in it, that big shape. To me, a good shape also has an interesting relationship with the shapes around it. So it might be a big shape that has a lot of little shapes around it, or it might be a shape that pierces uh, the negative space in an interesting way. I was drawing a lot of palm trees recently on Sanibel Island in Florida, and just the negative shape of the way the fronds of the palm pierced the sky made them an interesting shape, whether they were in, in a scene or not. But for me, that's mainly what it is. It has to be something that is not a circle or a rectangle, that it's an interesting shape that interlocks with what's around it. Is there anything from a, a size standpoint, like is it important to have shape contrast? For me, it is. I There's two things I love to put in design. I love pattern and I love repetition. So I love to find a scene where there's a lot of one shape that has a lot of variety, whether it's rectangles and then they change angles. I love poles and wires. So I love the vertical poles that have a rhythm and then electrical wires that go through the scene that tie all those poles together. I love masts of boats. And usually when you're painting a landscape, it's full of horizontals, the sky, the, the horizon line, the water line. And that's why I love the masts of boats, because they break up the space in such an interesting way, because they're vertical, and also they angle and they, they shift a little bit. So that's another thing that I always look for. I always look for a repetition of line or shape. And for you, because you have done a lot of this thinking throughout your career, this is something, a lot of this you can do in your head. You, or earlier in your career, these are things that you would problem solve in your value study and your sketches? Yes, and I often did an annotated value sketch. In other words, I would do a value sketch, and then I would write down all my thoughts. So I would write down where the values were, but I would also make color notations in there to say, okay, this boat is going to be this color, and the sky is this color, and the ground is this color. 
And then I would make little detailed drawings on the side of what some little thing might look like that if I walked away, I wouldn't remember how it looked if it was like the top of a lighthouse. And then I would actually write down what those things were. So I would say, okay, the dominant color is going to be gray. The dominant shape is going to be this thing. The dominant direction is going to be verticals. And the contrast to that is a horizontal line. Or let's say all the lines are oblique. So then we're going to have one curve in there that breaks up that. It All completely design-based. So a piece of advice to somebody sitting down who wants to do a little sketch and maybe it's just an urban sketch is just start small and think about what is the biggest shape in there or let's say break it down into five shapes how can you simplify if it's a house or the side of a house in sun and the, the side of a house in shadow and then what's the shape of the sky and then there's a tree and everything else is just details. But what are those big main shapes? And what are their relationships on the page? And how do they relate to the edge of the page? So you may not place something right in the center. You may decide, well, I think it's going to be a better design if I just move it over or if I move the horizon line up. Like I love to look at roads to go into a, a city or a town where there's roads that go up and down because those roads make, make the composition more interesting because it changes the, your relationship to the horizon line. You know, when you're looking up, the, the road may be, you may have three quarters of the page is road. And then only little houses at the top. And that's such a dramatic composition because you, you're looking way up the road into something. Whereas if you're just sitting on an even flat area, you always end up with the same big sky, little house, little bit of road. So choose also your point of view, where you sit, go lower or go higher in the building and look down on the road. Just put a little tension in the shapes by changing the relationship of them. So many of us as beginners walk in and probably because we're nervous, we think like, I have to paint that as it is. And you're like, let me get curious about how to paint that. I have to give credit to all my friends in the urban sketching community for making me see the world in a different way, because I have seen sketchers do curvilinear perspective, umbrella perspective, lying down on the ground and looking up at a tower. And if the tower doesn't fit in, they turn it at a 45 degree angle and make it fit on the page. And just seeing how other people treat things. And I guess in my first year or two of urban sketching, I would just sit on the Urban Sketchers blog and go through what people posted every day. And it just gives you so many ideas of how you can see the world in different ways, looking out through your window and doing a little bit of the inside of your house and then the view that you see through the window was another thing that was just amazing to me. You know, just you get a glimpse of someone's personal space and then you also see where they live in the greater part of their city. Even color choices, you know, seeing urban sketchers who work just with ink and then to use one color extremely effectively, like a red or a yellow to make a statement, to create emphasis somewhere was something that I, I learned a lot. I still learn a lot. It's the other thing that I wanted to say is that the urban sketching community is an extremely generous community uh, and it's really built on sharing and about 
not judging, about appreciating other people's work, about learning from each other. And so that for me was also part of the the excitement, the first urban sketching symposium that I went to. And everybody just wants to see your sketchbook, wants to show their sketches. Instructors will teach uh, a workshop and then take another workshop. So there's no giant egos that, you know, everybody's just extremely generous and wants to share what they know. So that, that has enriched my life in ways that I can't even express. I'm just thrilled to, to have these, these people in my life. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? Two things. One is to draw a lot, because once you draw, you develop an ease with drawing. Shapes will come easier, and that will make a better painting if you have a good drawing. Because in water, especially in watercolor, it's really hard to fix a bad drawing. This I know many times. And then the other thing is to get super, super comfortable with what we talked about earlier about understanding the wetness of the paper, the saturation of the color in your washes and the tools that you use. So I think the best way to really get comfortable is to limit yourself in some way. So take like three tubes of paint and really, really understand them by working with only those three colors. So go out and sketch for like a week or a month just with those three colors. And then you will really understand those three colors and then add another color. So like, don't put a hundred kinds of variables, you know, use one kind of paper, one kind of sketchbook paper and um, a limited palette and a couple of big, good brushes, and then just paint a lot and don't get precious and just turn the painting over and paint little things on the back of it and just really understand the way those things combine the chemistry of that. And then some things will just become really easy. Like you'll feel when the wash is right, you'll know when you can add. You'll remember when I went back into the water and I got too much water on my brush and then I went back into that wash and I ruined that beautiful wash. You will remember that. So don't worry about representing something. Just spend a lot of time playing with the materials. And on top of that, draw a lot because For example, I mentioned that one of my difficulties was perspective. The other one for me is drawing people. You know, I always feel very intimidated. That's part of the urban sketching thing is I would always draw a city, but it never had any people in it. And then somebody said to me once, well, what is a city without people? Or what is a city without cars? We're often urban sketchers are intimidated by putting figures in or putting cars in. And that really isn't a city without that. So I will often just take whatever it is that is so difficult for me, like people, and I'll just do it a lot. Draw people from photos, draw people in cafes, draw people as they're walking by. One of the most intimidating things for me, the first time I was a participant in an Urban Sketchers Symposium was drawing people. So all the workshops that I took were about people drawing. And I knew that if I did that a lot, I would overcome my fear. And in one of the workshops, we actually had to follow people down the street and draw them as they were walking or draw them standing. And then their position would shift. And then you would draw right over 
if their leg moved, you'd draw right over that. And then you lose the fear of what those shapes are. And you develop a kind of memory of what the relationships are of the body parts. For example, you know how big the head is compared to the torso. And then you learn simplification of drawing the curve of the spine first. I still do that. I still think, you know, if I haven't drawn people in a long time, I got to go out and draw some people because I feel rusty about drawing people. So like figure out what the difficulties are for you and just, just attack them. You know, they're just shapes. Just go out and draw them a lot. You can learn more about Sherry Blaukoff, including her workshops at learn.sherryblaukoff.com and at her blog on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sherry. That was so much fun, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. For links to all of Blaukov's great classes, show notes, and a link to that extended cut bonus, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 52. Thank you to everyone over in the Podcast Art Club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting!